let me just offer a word of caveat, right, as we kind of get into this text and work through it. Had no intention that we we're going to talk about this on Father's Day, but you're welcome anyway. Don't push it, you'll sleep on the couch. This morning we have a, an opportunity to come into a, a text that's really uh, increasingly countercultural. It was countercultural in the, in the day that Peter wrote it. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. We need to understand that it is absolutely the inspired word of God, and so it is good for you and your marriage to apply the truth of this text. Amen? Amen. Hey, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, let me pray for us. Pray for you. Uh, pray for the Holy Spirit that he would apply this to your hearts. Pray for us corporately as a body. And pray for myself. Would you join me? Father, we are so thankful for your goodness to us, for your Holy Spirit in our lives, teaching us truth, applying your word to our hearts. God, I recognize that as a body, we encounter a text here in 1 Peter 3 that is increasingly countercultural. We uh, see people live out a life that's completely opposite to this. We are labeled as small-minded and backwards for saying these things, many of us believing these things, living these things as a part of our, our household, the way we relate to our spouses, and then those of us who aren't married, if we advocate for this, we're, we're labeled as being backwards or not with it. But help us to resist any temptation to accommodate to culture at the expense of the truthfulness of your word. God, help us also to be gracious, to be loving to those who would disagree with us. Help us not to think incorrectly of them, but to recognize, as, recognize them as those for whom your son Jesus died, for whom his blood may atone, and that they are absolutely as lovely and worthy of being beheld by you as are we. So, Father, I pray that we would not go through this text with anyone other than ourselves in mind, our relationships, those things that you have equipped us with a grace to endure, relationships that you have placed us squarely in. And I just thank you for an opportunity to discuss this together today as family. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be mightily at work, not just among this body, not just here at Ridgecrest, but then in the many churches of our community. I'm so thankful that we are not laboring here in Greenville and Hunt County alone, but we have many churches. And Father, I pray that those many churches might be recognized as all laboring together, working together, serving you well in this place that our collaborative desire, the way that all of our hearts would beat, would not be to have one strong independent church at the, at the detriment of, of all the gathered churches, but that we would all manifest one body, and that being the body of Jesus Christ, him the head, and that we would all find ourselves in submission to that. And so I pray for the very many pastors of our community that you would give them hearts that beat that way, <clears throat> that their desire would be to see your kingdom expand and not their own. So God, we pray for them this morning. Father, I'm so thankful that you 
so perfectly show us what a father is. Some of us have been hurt, disappointed, let down. Some of us did not know our fathers. But you show, so perfectly show to us the example of a father who is ever loving, who is perfect. In, in you there is no darkness. In you there is no fault, no misgiving. And I pray that we would submit ourselves ever more to becoming who you would desire us to be in our relationships in our workplace relationships, in our home life. And God, I pray that you would give us grace this morning as we walk through this text, and we pray for the application of your Holy Spirit into our lives. And I pray for myself that you would help me to speak clearly to those things which you have allowed me to encounter in my study. God, we just pray for the administration of your Spirit in our midst. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let me, uh, let me read this, and then we will walk through it. I'll set it back up, but let me read 1 through 6 to us together. Peter writes and says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. They may be won by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. By illustration, he uses Sarah. He says in verse 6, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. What an interesting message that through the providence of God we land on here on Father's Day. And I wanted to say something to you who may be husbands out there. Listen to me. It's not your job to make sure your wife abides by what we read here. Can we say that? It's not your job to make sure your wife abides by what we're going through. I want to make sure we kind of start with that because I'm going to hit some points that come off of it. I've heard, I've seen this verse and others that describe male headship so severely uh, perverted, twisted, and just abused to the detriment of women in our culture. There's no place for that in this text. There's no place for that in the New Testament. There's no place for that. If you're a man and you use any passage within the New Testament, any passage within the Bible to lord your authority over your wife, to abuse her verbally, physically, sexually, let me just say, you're a small man and you need help. If your husband's doing this, come and see me. Come and see another man in this church. We will help you. We will speak with him. He needs help, and so do you. Do you hear me in this? It's so critically important. I just want to start there. If you are being abused, and your husband has ever used this passage or some other passage to defend his behavior, he is wrong. You don't deserve it. He's not right. He's absolutely in error. We love him and we love you. We want to make sure you're safe. And so if this is, this is you, 
stop by the office. We would love to talk with you. We'd love to be invested in your relationship and to help you guys get to a healthy place, okay? So let's just start by saying that. Let's move through the text then. Paul, or Peter rather, is writing this, and if you look right back up in chapter three, what did we just talk about? It's this long section that began really back in 2.13 that said, be subject to the Lord's sake. And so we recognize that in his discussion of our submission to government, in his discussion of our submission, and, and so he went in and he talked about slaves that had good masters and bad masters. So all over, our understanding of submission is rooted in, firmly established in our submission to Jesus. And so I'll say this, if you don't submit to Jesus, you're never going to submit to anybody else. If you don't submit to Jesus, you're never going to submit to anybody else. So if you don't know what it is to follow Jesus, to lay down your life before him, and to say, Jesus, I'll follow you in wherever you call me to, then it's never going to work in any of your horizontal relationships either. You cannot submit to your husband. You cannot submit to government authorities. You cannot demonstrate any form of biblical submission outside of what it is to first and foremost submit to Jesus. We have to understand that. And so he began with that. And then we look back at 2.12, and we recognize the pattern in which we live, the way that we live our lives, the way that we engage, or the course and manner of our lives should be a bold testimony and a witness In essence, as we go about and we engage in in just conversation, as we live out, what Peter had written back in 2.12 was that we are to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? He said that so that when they speak out against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's always this component within the Gospels. One, that we are communicating it clearly, but two, that we are living it out well. And so if what you're communicating out doesn't line up with the way that you're living, Nobody's buying it. Nobody's buying it. Nobody's believing it. Nobody's buying into it. And so we recognize that it made it through what it is to submit to government. It made it through what it is to have people in authority over us. And it makes it even into the midst of our marriages. This is why Paul in Ephesians 5 just says that marriage is a picture of the gospel. Your marriage should be a picture of the gospel. The way a husband relates to his wife, the way a wife relates to her husband, all these things should display the gospel. It should display grace, it should display uh, bold deference towards one another, and it should display the gospel. So look what he says here to wives. He goes through all these things, and he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. We recognize one thing right off the bat. You're never subject to someone else's husband. You're never subject to someone else's husband, okay? But the second thing we recognize within the confines of this text is we have to make sure we understand what he's saying when he says be subject. When Peter writes this and describes it, it's, it's something you do to yourself. So Peter's not writing me as a husband and saying, Matt, no, this is your duty over your wife. You need to go to her and you need to place her in subjection to yourself. Which if you know my wife, you'd know that this would be just a laughable endeavor. And so he's not coming to me and saying, you just need to, you just need to make sure that she's doing what she's doing uh, in accordance with the instructions that you've given her. That is clearly not the instruction that he's giving here. He's addressing wives, in particular, something that was unheard of in the day and which time in which he wrote. Recognize first he wrote to slaves, and he addressed them as autonomous beings who had volitional choice and he told them you freely give yourself 
to obedience. Nobody in the first century thought that. He's writing contradictory uh, contradictory, uh, information to all the moral philosophers of the first century. So then he turns to wives, who within the first century didn't have friends of her own, didn't have a voice of her own, didn't have a will of her own. And what does he do? He elevates them to the point where they become this primary person which he turns to address. And so Peter, in every sense and understanding of what he's doing here, is absolutely elevating the role of women. Amen? Come on. Peter's absolutely positively engaging in an elevation of the role of women. Amen? There you go. So he's engaging in this process. And the first thing that we see by doing this, he turns to them and he says, You wives have to place yourselves in submission. I'm not a wife. This is clearly evident to many of you today. I can't do this. Valerie can do this for herself. If you're married here, your wife can do this, but you cannot force her to do this. If you're a woman in this place today, and you are married, Scripture is telling you to place yourself in submission to your husband. It's not a popular message today. It's not something we see worked out well today, and it is largely mischaracterized as some vestigial imprint left over from a bygone era. But what we see within this is it stands the opportunity to be the most beautiful, poignant, powerful display of the gospel in your husband's life. In your husband's life. He comes into this and he says, be subject to your own husband. In essence, he's making this argument that you are painting the gospel through your conduct when you submit yourself to your husband. We recognize this submission is not doing everything your husband says. Your husband comes in and he says, jump, and you yell, how high? He says, cook, and you say, yes, sir, what would you like to eat? This is not what he's describing. In fact, Peter's discussion here isn't even found within some of the conversations we have of, does the husband work outside the house or does the wife These are things you can freely work out within the expression of of what you'd like to do. For many years, I've been trying to get Valerie to get a job outside the home so I could stay. I'll let you know if that works. No, she says no. Okay. Not going anywhere with that one. I thought maybe peer pressure. You guys are no help. We recognize those are things that are worked out within within the confines of a marital relationship. And what he's primarily addressing is the wife's heartbeat for her husband. Does she live to to support, to lift up her husband? The amazing thing about issues of gender role, especially when we get into Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5.18 discusses what it is to live in community with other believers. And in 5.18, he says this, that you need to be filled with the Spirit. You need to be filled with the Spirit. One of the reasons your relationship to your husband might seem difficult, you might have a hard time submitting yourself to him, it starts primarily with your submission to God. Recognize Peter here back in 2.13 said, be subject for the Lord's sake. If, if you're a wife here today, a woman here today, or a woman looking to get married, and you don't submit yourself to Jesus, you're never going to submit yourself to your husband. If you don't submit yourself to Jesus, it's impossible for you to submit yourself to your husband. And if you're married today, and if you're not submitting yourself to your husband, then you don't know what it is to submit yourself to Jesus. 
Peter's tying the two together. Be subject for the Lord's sake, and it's worked out within your horizontal relationships. I've seen a lot of cutting glances. You can be mad at Peter, you get to heaven, you can talk to him. Don't be mad at me. This is what he says. Be subject to your own husbands. Now he's talking to all wives. All wives. And so what I want you to understand is that he's working out this tension whereby we would see a woman come to faith, her husband does not believe, he has his own gods, he has his own uh, friends, and now she is diametrically opposed to him. She's absolutely opposed to him. She's worshiping, worshiping Jesus exclusively, and he's worshiping uh, some, some form of the pantheon of gods. He has a variety of gods that he's sacrificing and making offerings to for different things that he wants to work out in his family. And so automatically, she's not falling in accordance with good and proper first century etiquette. Why? Because she's violating this family moral code. She has another God outside of those that he has chosen for his family. And so clearly we see in this that the way Peter's describing it is if your husband calls you to do something sinful, direct contradiction to the word, for this you did not submit. For this you did not submit. You don't follow your husband in sin. If he tells you, hey, let's enter into an open relationship, let's invite other people into our bed, you do not submit in this. If he tells you, let's do something unethical or immoral, let's engage in sinful practices, you do not engage in this. If your husband calls you to do something that is a contradiction to the revealed will of God, his word, you don't do it. If your husband comes up to you and he says, God told me in a vision or a dream or impressed upon my heart and you can't find validation in scripture for his inward movement of his stomach, you don't follow him in this. You submit first and foremost to Jesus, amen? And then you follow your husband as he does the same. But Peter recognizes among those that he writes to, he has some women that are married to husbands that aren't Christians. Now, this is something we see in our day as well, something we see in our own body here. And what he writes to this wife, and she is operating within the first century from a place of absolutely no power, absolutely no authority. She's not viewed societally, societally as an equal to him. She's not viewed as this, this person who has all the same rights as her husband. She's viewed societally within the first century as an absolute inferior person to him. She's got no rights. She's got no choices. And Peter demonstrates and writes here that she has incredible sway over her husband's heart. Peter writes and says, submit to your husbands so that even if some do not obey the word. Now what he's describing here is their ready opposition to the gospel. Back in chapter 1 and verse 22, Peter talked about they have been cleansed and made holy. They found themselves in submission to the truth. They came to be Christians. And so these wives too, at some point were, were obstinate. They were opposed. They were against the word of God. But at some point, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, they move from deadness to life. Colossians 1 says we move from darkness to light. At some point, these wives became Christians. Now for some of these wives, their husbands did not move. They were not positively affected by the gospel. They didn't submit themselves to Jesus. So now you've got this house living intention. Woman who believes and a husband who doesn't. Now for this woman in the first century, it's likely this tremendous feeling of despair. 
She's not able to move the needle. She's not able to direct his heart. She's not able to affect him. But what Peter describes to her is that her conduct can have a profound impact on his heart for eternity. Her conduct can have a profound impact on his heart for eternity. Look what he does here. He is tying her submission to the salvation of her husband. You need to be subject so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. If you're here today, if you're here today and your husband is not a believer in faith in Jesus Christ, and you are short with him, you put him off, and you think you don't submit to him, you're wrong. This is what Scripture is calling you to. You still submit to your husband. Why? Because you are absolutely displaying the gospel in your response to him. And he's got to understand something. Your husband's got to understand the motivation behind your submission to him. And so let me just say this. If your husband, your spouse, you're married, either way, your spouse is not a believer and you have never shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, it's very clear to me what your requirements are for this afternoon. You've got one application point. If you have never shared the gospel with your spouse and they're not a believer in faith in Jesus Christ, you have one point of application for, for yourself this afternoon. You're going to go and you're going to share the gospel with them. You're going to tell them where your motivation to submit to them comes from. It's not that you desire to be the best wife. You don't desire to get this, this phone call from, you know, the people with Betty Crocker magazine or, you know, or, you know, Power Woman magazine or Christian Woman magazine that says, oh, my goodness, we want you to be featured in the cover. You're such an amazing wife. Everything we've ever heard about you is that you're just the greatest. It's not to be recognized by your friends. It's not to be sought after for counsel, wisdom, advice, input. Your motivation to submit to your husband stems from your submission to Jesus Christ. We have to understand this. And your husband has to know. If you have a non-believing spouse, it is absolutely on you to live out the gospel, to articulate it in the way that you live. But it's got to be more than that. Peter writes here, he says, so that they may be one without a word, but he does not forbid speaking the gospel. You speak the gospel. Give them some context to understand your behavior, especially if you got married and then came to faith later, and they say, you're just a whole lot more agreeable now. You're, I tell you what, that old girl I used to be married to, she was rough, but I like this new you. It's nice. You're not better looking. Things are falling, but you're so much nicer I can tolerate the homeliness. And you say, let me talk to you about two things. One, this homeliness comment. And we're coming back to that. You have to explain the gospel. You have to explain the reason, the rationale for your change of behavior. Why and what it is for you to live out a bold and vibrant expression of the gospel before your husband. Look what it says. It says, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Verse 2. It's an amazing description here, respectful and pure conduct. Recognize he's not talking about their conduct towards their husbands. He's talking about their conduct before God. He's talking about their conduct before God. And so as, as a wife, 
within this context, you're living in the midst of a husband who disbelieves. Your primary obligation each and every day is to boldly manifest the gospel in the way that you live. One of my mom's close friends, she died a number of years ago after 35 years of marriage. She got saved about a year into her marriage. She was married to a guy of Jewish descent. He was really just heritage only. He didn't, didn't believe in God, but this is kind of what his family was. And for the 33 years of their marriage that they were married, after she came to faith, she prayed for him. She poured out the gospel before him. She faithfully attended church. And never once, to my knowledge, in those 33 years, did she ever see his heart move to the gospel. To my knowledge, when she died, her husband had never given her life to Jesus. I want you to understand something. You can live out the most vibrant, beautiful display of the gospel, and for her, she suffered over nine years with cancer and never once turned away from God. She continued to give him glory, continued to give him honor, continued to submit herself to her husband, and he never turned his heart to Jesus. You can live the most beautiful, vibrant display of the gospel you ever would like to in complete and utter perfection, and your spouse may never come to know Jesus. It's not on you to save your spouse. And I hope for some of you, you find freedom in that. I hope for some of you that you understand God is absolutely able to change your husband's heart, your part, is being faithful to display the gospel. Never once did I hear bitterness in this woman's voice. Never once did I hear her, her browbeat or talk down or about her husband or what an awful husband he was. They had phenomenal disagreements. She was a Republican and he was a Democrat. I mean, good Lord. <laughs> Political jokes, you just gotta go with it. He was a non-believer and she absolutely loved Jesus. She raised her kids to love Jesus. So you've got a believing mother, two believing sons, living out a vibrant display of Jesus, walking in grace. Those moments that she fails, she gives a tremendous witness for you. If you're here and you have a non-believing spouse, you are going to mess up. It's just true. You're gonna fall short, you're gonna fail, you're gonna sin. Don't cover your sin. Don't make excuses for it. You're a rotten sinner. This did not change when you, got, when you got saved. This did not change. What has changed is your eternal destiny. What has changed is you have now received grace. And so what you show your husband in the midst of failure is not brokenness, but it's what it is to be forgiven and to walk in light of that forgiveness. Do you understand the difference there? If you're gonna boldly display the gospel for your husband, then you have to show your husband what grace looks like what it is to be forgiven by God, what it is to, to show your husband, man, I failed, I don't rejoice in that, that's not me. Romans 6, Paul says, I am dead to sin and alive to Jesus, amen. And I am walking a light of what I am now alive with, but I wrestle with who I used to be. I wrestle with who I used to be. Your husband needs to understand that you're not calling him to live a life of per perfection, and for any of you who are married, you recognize that he couldn't do that anyway. He couldn't do that anyway. He's never going to be perfect, and you certainly don't show him what it is to be perfect either. 
So you're living out this vibrant display of the gospel. And then three and four, Peter really kind of moves to address something that was a whole lot more prominent in his day, but let's just, let's just hit it really quickly. He says, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But he makes an argument. He says, instead, let it be this inner manifestation of your heart. Now, within Peter's day, he's writing, he's addressing this first century audience. Women did not have friends of their own outside the home. They did not engage largely in enterprises outside the purview and direction of their husband. And so what he was trying to mitigate against were these women who had come to faith, get all dressed up and put on nice clothes and earrings and all this stuff, and then go to church. And then the people in the community would see that and be like, hussy, harlot, hussy. Do you see what I'm saying? He wants to make sure that they're not giving the impression that they're engaged in illicit sexual behavior is really what this is rooted in here. And so when the women in the first century would go out, people already know they're disrupting the fabric of their home because they've come to faith and their husband hasn't. And so now they're getting dressed up and they're going out. Like nobody in Greenville, Texas is accusing you when you put on nice pants and a shirt and you drive out on Sunday morning, you're like, oh, they're going to a brothel. I know what they do on the weekends. Anybody ever accused of that on Sunday morning driving to Ridgecrest? No? I saw a hand in the back. We'll talk later. It's like nobody's being accused of this, but we recognize within this that he is calling us to modesty in dress. He's not saying you can't fix your hair, that's ridiculous. What he's talking about is focusing so much on this external manifestation that there's no focus on the inward part. Your primary designation, uh, be it as a wife or just, just a Christian here today, is that you would focus on your internal heart response. Look what he says here. Let your adorning, verse 4, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Anybody physically find themselves being imperishable? Anybody? I would love to talk to you. I would love to talk to you. I got gray hairs popping up in my eyebrows. I didn't know that was a thing. I thought at first it was a very, very blonde hair. I pulled it and he has friends. And so we find that, that, that within the context of our society, there is this, this inclination to push, to focus so much on the external with not a whole lot of value placed on the internal. And that's really one of the reasons that we find ourselves within this place today. But look how he describes this person internally. He says they have a gentle and a quiet spirit. Flip over to Matthew 11. Flip over to Matthew 11. Peter wrote and said, it needs to be an imper- the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, is, which in God's sight is very precious. And then in Matthew 11, this is what we read in verses 28 and 29. Jesus speaking, he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he describes himself. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So we recognize that what Peter's describing here is inwardly manifesting who Jesus is. What he describes here, and he says that they need to have the imperishable beauty of the inner heart, which is gentle and quiet, he's calling you to display, in a very real sense, Jesus. So in the midst of going out, in the midst of of facing antagonism, in the midst of of being in a difficult home life, Peter's response to you would be, 
Don't put up a, don't put up a facade. Don't try and put up this posture that says everything is okay, but primarily manifest Jesus. Jesus, who we just read about a few verses ahead, or behind, rather, within 1 Peter, who suffered, who was beaten, who was tortured, and continued to display kindness, love, and grace. In the midst of a marital relationship, we're not asking you to suffer abuse, but recognize Jesus suffered abuse for you. In the midst of a sometimes tense marital relationship, what Peter is calling us to do is to continually display Jesus. In essence, we're, we're channeling kind of who Jesus is, asking the Holy Spirit to come in, help me respond in kind with the way Jesus would respond within this. And Peter illustrates it for us in verses 5 and 6. Verse 4, this is what your heart needs to be. You need to be gentle, you need to be kind. God looks at that and he says it's precious. Verses 5 and 6, Peter picks up on Sarah. <clears throat> now Sarah is written about and understood within the Old Testament context of being this woman that all other women wanted to live up to. They wanted to, to emulate, they wanted to live to the type of life that would, would closely approximate her. And so there's Jezebel, nobody wants to be her, the name just sounds evil. But Sarah, everybody wants to kind of live up to this, to emulate this life. And what he writes is here, for this is how the holy women of the Lord who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So he's calling in this very bold, beautiful heritage of faith that you have. And so maybe as you sit here today, and you say, I don't have anybody that went ahead of me that showed me how to be a godly wife. And this is true for a number of the women in this place today. Maybe you sit here as a man and you say, I never saw my mom, I never saw the women around me emulate, display what it is to be a godly wife. So when it comes to choosing a spouse, I am blind. Like I want somebody who doesn't cuss like a sailor or chew tobacco. And I know those things, but outside of those things, I'm not really sure what to look for in a woman. Peter shows us here is there this bold heritage of faith that goes all the way back to the patriarch goes all the way back there to he and to his wife and she referred to him as Lord she's giving us in verse 6 this display of her submission to him we see that every time we move in line with keeping of the submission of Sarah this is what he says for the wise you are her children if you do good, and, and the ESV has this really odd way of saying this, it says, and do not fear anything that is frightening. In essence, what the author, what Peter's trying to get to in this, this overly rigid translation of the ESV is, in the midst of your marital relationship, don't fear your husband. Don't fear your husband. Your primary concern needs to be God. If you're seeking to follow him, submitting yourself to Jesus, you will walk out appropriately, an appropriate expression of the gospel within the confines of your marriage. But if your primary concern is how is my husband going to respond when? How is he going to respond when I say this? How is he going to respond when I do this? How is he going to respond when I pray? How is he going to respond when, when I want to give this to the homeless guy on the street? How is he going to respond when I share the gospel with my kids? How is he going to respond with this? When you're so captivated with the how is he going to respond and how is he going to feel then you're not walking in kind with the way Peter would have you to live the course of your life. 
let me just reiterate. Your husband's salvation is not on your shoulders. If you're a wife in this room today, your husband's salvation is not on your shoulders. If you're unmarried in this room, you have a desire to be married, I could save you a lot of heartache. Look for people who are passionately following Jesus. Run in such a way as they have to catch up with you to get to Jesus and find somebody you're running alongside and marry that person. If he's ugly, if she's ugly, buy low watt bulbs. This is, you know, it's true. When I first started dating, my dad gave me some advice when I went off to college. He said, this is advice my dad gave me and I found it to be helpful. Don't look for a wife in bars. I said, well, I'm 18, I can't, I can't go in bars. He said, when you look for a spouse, look, at, look for a spouse who's passionately pursuing Jesus and somebody who you think you'd like to spend the rest of your life with. You have no idea what's gonna happen to them. You could get married to them Driving back from the honeymoon, you could be in a car wreck and they could remain in a persistent vegetative state for the rest of the course of your marriage. How they look, how they treat you cannot be the primary reasons you pick a spouse. Marriage is so much more important than looks. It's so much more important than personality. It's so much more important than, than, than points of, of compliment. She's just so kind to me. She's so supportive of me. Her family's rich. When you go to pick a spouse, you want to pick somebody who's passionately pursuing Jesus. And until you find this person, stay single. If you find yourself living in the midst of a marriage and your spouse doesn't know Jesus, then this passage is absolutely clear for you. You continue to passionately pursue Jesus and pray for the salvation of your spouse. If you are married, and your spouse loves Jesus. Praise God. We have women in this church's, church whose spouses don't know Jesus. They have not yet submitted themselves to him. They don't know him as Savior and Lord. And you have an amazing honor and privilege to pray for that woman, that she would boldly live out the gospel each and every day, and to pray for this man that God would catch a hold of his heart that he would submit himself to Jesus and to love them both and to fight for their marriage and for its health and for its vitality. You know, one of the things I absolutely love, I absolutely love about corporate gatherings is that as I look out from here, I see single people, I see married people, I see widows, I see widowers. It's kind of all walks of life. We recognize that in Peter's writing to these various churches within this diaspora, he wrote to churches that had very much the same life experiences and life manifestations that we do. Single people, married people, people that are divorced, people that are married and unhappy, people that are married and happy. And he wrote to them as one community. And this, it's the same as us today. We have this amazing privilege to walk arm in arm together. Nobody in this room is alone. Nobody in this room is alone. You're not going through the difficulties of this life by yourself. 
And you have brothers and sisters in Christ who love you, who love Jesus, and who desire to walk alongside you. So that when your marriage is terrible and you want to quit, we're there to support you. When your marriage is great and ours is terrible, you can support us. Everyone's going to go through various rhythms over the course of their life. Some days your marriage is going to be great. Some days it's going to be terrible. But what we have the amazing privilege to do as Christians is to continue to live out this bold display of the gospel in the midst of our marriages and to support those who aren't doing as well as we are today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you join with me as I pray for us? Pray for our marriages. Pray for those who are not yet married, that they might find spouses who are boldly, passionately seeking to follow Jesus each and every day. And in kind with this passage, pray especially for those who've been joined to a person who's not yet submitted themselves to Jesus. Pray for the salvation of the non-believing spouse and pray for the grace of the Christian. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. God, I thank you for the privilege um, it is for me to pastor this church comprised of people from a variety of different backgrounds. I just thank you for that. God, I pray first for the singles, that you'd be safekeeping their heart for those who are going to be married, that you'd be safekeeping their heart for their future spouse. God, for those who will remain single, we pray for their encouragement. And I pray that they would not see themselves as, as anything less than complete and whole in you, and that we would not give them that impression that singleness is something to be fixed. Recognize that Paul speaks highly of singleness. For those of us who are married to believing spouses, I pray that we would safe keep the gospel well. For our spouse, that husbands would serve our wives well, that we would love them as Christ loved the church, recognizing that he gave himself up for her, that our love for our spouses would not be self-exalting, but, but self-deprecating in some sense that we would die to self and live to you in the way that we graciously lead our spouses. And Father, we pray for the wives in this room who are married to believers, that you would help them in their manifestation of the gospel, that they would be quick to forgive, that they would be a great support for their husband and a, and a wonderful compliment to him. And Father, we pray for those couples in this room that either the husband believes and the wife doesn't or the wife believes and the husband doesn't. God, could we be so bold to pray first and foremost that you would bring them to salvation? I think that's all of our heart cry this morning. That by the power of your spirit, you would enjoin all of our prayers for the salvation of those who have yet to submit themselves to you. So God, so we pray for those husbands. We pray for those wives who don't know you. And we boldly ask, ask you for their salvation, that you would stir in their hearts. And God, we pray that you would be with the believing spouse, that you would be daily an encouragement to them, that you would give them an extra measure of your grace, that they would have a sense of purpose in their marriage. They would be incredibly blessed to manifest your gospel and to live each and every day as a missionary in their own home. 
And Father, we just thank you for this time we've had together this morning and ask that your Holy Spirit would continue to move in our lives and give us points of application that we've not yet thought through, prayed through, or even considered. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.